everyone. Thanks for joining me today here on the Spartan Spotlight Podcast. I'm Justin Thind from SpartanMag.com, part of the Rivals Network. We're going to hop right into it today. I'm just going to run through some of the observations I had in today's game. Corey's not with me today for this episode, but he'll be here for the episode later in the week where we preview next week's game. But just hopping right into the observations that I saw today, the first thing I want to touch on is something that kind of left me with an unsettled feeling before the game even started, and that was the decision to start Connor Hayward. Uh, Right from when the decision was revealed by the commentary team on BTN before the game started, that was something that just did not sit right with me. Putting it as clear as possible so there's no confusion about my stance on the usage of Connor Hayward, I would basically say... I haven't hit leg day here in about six months since the pandemic started, and I think I'm more explosive than Connor Hayward. I don't understand the use of him in the offense if you're going to be handing the ball to him, let alone giving him seven carries. The notion was that they they went with Connor Hayward because of pass protection purposes, and he gifted them seven points as far as I'm concerned on that uh, play where he didn't block anybody on the strip sack fumble no quarterback's internal clock expects them to get hit that hard that quickly right after getting the snap. And Connor decided to not block anybody that was in front of him on that play. I don't know if if he was deciding between blocking one of two guys. I recall that it was just him one-on-one. I may be wrong, but fact of the matter is he didn't block anybody. That put Rutgers up 14 nothing right from the beginning. It really changed things. And then I don't understand using him on swing passes. I don't think that he's going to be catching the ball and exploding through any hole. Now he might have the most sure hands out of out of any of the the running backs, so he might grade out better than than them when it comes to catching the ball. But what's he going to do after he catches the ball? That's what I'm more interested to see when considering the decision of throwing swing passes to a given running back. I think that if he uh, doesn't have that strip sack that he allowed on on the one play. Maybe you could say that the decision to use him for pass protection might be justified. I didn't really watch that closely other than that one time that it was highlighted on that play. Maybe maybe that part of the rationale was justified other than that play, but I feel like that's too glaring enough already to justify that decision. But even if they would have started Elijah Collins and given him more carries, I don't think that would have made much of a difference on the traditional handoffs. I think it would have been better to throw swing passes to him. I think he would explode and hit the hole harder. But traditional handoffs, I don't think he would have been able to do much more with this offensive line. Actually, I think they did end up giving Elijah more carries. I think he had nine versus Connor Hayward's seven. And we saw saw where all of those carries went. Elijah had an average of .3 rush yards today, nine carries leading to three yards. Connor had seven carries for 18 yards. And then Jordan Simmons, who's a very pleasant surprise, who just hits the hole hard. He had 14 carries for 43 yards, but then he fumbled the ball, and I don't know if he was used after that. So I don't like the decision to play Connor Hayward that much, and in the situations that they did, namely the swing passes, but that still brings me back to the point of I don't think that makes much of a difference if this is the offensive line play you're going to get. I think that coach Chris Kapilovic is one of the best offensive line coaches in college football. You can go ahead and look at the work he's done taking over the UNC team that he did and what he did to them in just a matter of two years and then getting named the offensive coordinator at UNC as a result and also doing so well there that 
Mel hired him at Colorado. I don't think there is any any lack in the coaching that the offensive line is receiving. Now, there might not have been enough time to get them coached up to recover from maybe some of the the, the previous teachings that they might have received. But for the most part, I am not worried about the coaching they're receiving. My main concern is the actual personnel in that group. There was absolutely no push, no blocking on any sort of running plays. And I think that if you can't run the ball, then you're not going to win many games. Now, I'm not a proponent of unnecessarily forcing there to be a balance of 50-50. But if you're not able to run the ball, that's just going to discombobulate the entire offense. So touching on the running game and the offensive line a little bit there. Now I want to move on to one specific play call related to those two things. If you're down um, 28-20, to and that's your offensive line, and you've seen that that's how they played for for the time leading up to that, and you know you have struggled getting up to three yards on multiple runs, I don't understand the logic of going ahead and going forward on fourth and two. Now, generally, I'm a proponent of going forward on fourth and two when you're at that part of the field. As an Eagles fan, that's something that our head coach, Doug Peterson, does all the time. Since he took over the job, he leads the NFL in fourth down attempts. And just generally, I'm a proponent of not kicking field goals when you've gotten the ball down there and you just need one, two, maybe three yards. But there's not a chance in the world I would even go for that after seeing the push our offensive line was not getting in the time leading up to it. That would have made the game 28 to 23, I believe. And before the final interception, we only would have needed eight instead of 11. And then another reason that this is an interesting play to look at is that Will Hunter on Twitter, who does a lot of MSU breakdowns for his newsletter, dove into Mel Tucker's tendencies at Colorado. And he noticed that Mel Tucker's not a very aggressive coach in terms of going forward on fourth down. Yet, he went forward and forth down a few times with that one sticking out the most, obviously. So that's something interesting to think about, that this is a coach that usually doesn't do that. Uh, across the entire nation, he ends up being on the much, much more conservative side of things on those kind of plays. And this was this was his decision today. So that's just something interesting to think about here, but... So for the offense, that's that's really all the negatives I'm going to touch on there. Moving to the defense, uh, I don't like the fact that the Spartans didn't stop Rutgers a single time in the red zone from scoring a touchdown. One of the things that Scotty Hazleton was um, lauded for at Kansas State, though, was third down efficiency, and they kind of held Rutgers to 6 for 15 there. So not not amazing, but just above 33%. So we did get what we were, what MSU fans uh, were hoping for there. But the thing is that once you get them down that close to the red zone, which a lot of the times it was no fault of their own since the offense was fumbling the ball away a lot of the time, eventually at least one of those times it'd be nice to get a red zone, red zone stop. But the biggest thing, the biggest issue I saw with the defense was the fact that every single time that they made contact with a player and it wasn't Xavier Henderson or Antoine Simmons or Chase Klein making the hit, seemed like every offensive player in Rutgers gained an additional uh, two to three yards after the contact, sometimes four to five if it was a total arm tackle with no um, resistance provided. 
And that's that's a huge glaring issue. Corey and I were talking about that before I started recording this. And you can't you cannot be letting these guys get an additional few yards every single time, even if you sniff out the play and you recognize exactly what's happening, you get there fast, you get there hard, and then you still can't capitalize on it and let them spill forward for a couple more yards. That that was one of the bigger things from the defense. I know they were not primed um, to be successful today with the with the field position that they were all, always facing a lot of the time, but those are some things that they definitely still should have done well. Moving to the positives a little bit, though, I thought that Rocky Lombardi played about as well as you could hope, not counting the the, the turnovers. So looking at his line, he was 31 for 43, 319 yards and three touchdowns with the two interceptions and the strip sacks. But if somebody would have told me that Rocky would go 72% completion percentage, over 300 yards and three touchdowns, I would have thought that we that I would have thought that Michigan State would win the game by at least 14 points. The issue was obviously the 43 attempts that kind of tips off the fact that you had no semblance of a run game throughout the course of the game to where Rocky Lombardi is throwing 42, 43 passes a game when it was clear that they wanted him to just be a game manager and not to light you up through the air and single-handedly beat you. And touching on that game manager remark, I think that's a place where Jay Johnson does deserve some credit. He had a very specific game plan that allowed for Rocky Lombardi to stay within his game, to stay within his strengths, and to get him easy, manageable passes, get him passes that can slowly but surely lead the offense down the field. And he picked a quarterback that he knows how to game plan for. And it would have been a game plan that would have been executed fine had two things gone differently. One, the fumbles. I think even just the fumbles alone, that changes the game. You win the game if you don't have those fumbles for for one. And I think you could have won by several touchdowns if the other thing goes to plan, and that's having any sort of a run game. They were not threatening through the ground at all, and that allowed them to key in a little more on the pass. And that probably detracted a little bit away from what Rocky could have done. But just in general, I think um, proving that a 42% passer in his career, Rocky Lombardi, could go 72% and score three touchdowns, I think that's that's a W for Jay Johnson and his vision for when he named Rocky the starting quarterback. I'm assuming it was mostly his decision. And that was executed fine in terms of the type of plays he chose for the type of quarterback he chose. But the fumbles are just not going to, they're just going to stand in the way of every single chance you have of putting it in into the end zone if you're going to fumble it right when you cross midfield. And I think Jay Johnson, his scheme, that could not have overcome those fumbles. But after complimenting Jay Johnson, I, I will say that I didn't understand some of the runs on second and 16, the the swing passes on, on like second and 18. Some of those plays, I feel like it was just because he was trying to um, kind of do the unexpected and go with what he thought Rutgers might not have been expecting. 
but I wasn't a fan of some of those. But I, I feel like if you're going to blame the loss on somebody, you can't blame it on Rocky. And other than some of those swing passes, and maybe even if he had a lot of pull in the decision to, to have Hayward play that role, I think those are the, the only two two things that I would really take away from negatives and Jay Johnson's facet of the game. So all in all, I think those fumbles, they really, they really impacted the outcome. I think Michigan State wins this game, if not for the fumbles. And then if you have fumbles and a run game, I think you win it quite easily. So I saw comments after the game of people saying, oh, the team didn't bring the effort and the team looked uninspired. I'm not so sure about that unless you're considering the fumbles to be a part of effort. Maybe maybe I see your argument then if that's your point. Or if you consider the fact that maybe we didn't have any sort of blocking just because of effort. I don't know. I didn't watch any offensive line film. I'm not um, an expert on offensive line scouting. If your argument is we played uninspired based on the offensive line's blocking, then I see that. But other than that, no, I, I don't I don't agree that we came out unmotivated and that Rutgers wanted it more. Unless, like I said, you're talking specifically about fumbles and offensive line play as measures of effort. But all in all, I think if you correct the turnovers, you can compete in several games. Now, the offensive line, I don't know what you can do about that if you're Coach Cap. You're going to need your guys like Gino Vandemark and all these other guys to come in, and then maybe you can start running the ball like you want. I don't know what you can do midseason. Now, I think you'll probably see Elijah Collins more once they watch the film. I think they will evaluate that and make the change accordingly to the snap count that they each get. But still, like I said, what is that? You put Elijah Collins behind that offensive line, I don't know what you really get. You're going to be looking like, Saquon Barkley from his freshman year at Penn State where he breaks six, seven tackles just to make the loss of five into a loss of two. But I think that covers most of the X's and O's for this game. Now, there were lots of people that were angry about the outcome of this game, as I was too. So I'm not going to sit here and make it seem like Rutgers is some juggernaut that we should have lost to. I'm just going to make one point about about Rutgers maybe not being as bad as 2019 and move on. I've had some conversations about this with people on Twitter and whatnot as well. And I think it. I should point out the fact that they have a new offensive coordinator from Oklahoma State. They have a new head coach in Greg Schiano who had taken them to several bowl games. I want to say more than five. And he had an 11-1 season with them before he left. Not to mention that, but they have a new quarterback that had some success, at least completion percentage-wise, um, at Nebraska where he last was, Noah Vedral. And on the defense, they have several Big Ten quality starters that transferred in that were not there last year. And those include Brendan White from Ohio State, the safety, um, Michael Dwumfor from Michigan, Malik Barrow, the defensive tackle from Ohio State, just to name a few. But the point of this is is to not excuse that game and to say it's okay to lose to Rutgers. I just wanted to add some perspective that Rutgers in 2020 is not the Rutgers of the old, just to put it into perspective a little bit. And I just bring that up to combine with the fact that, like I was saying, if we don't turn the ball over seven times, we could be competitive in other games 
and take into account the fact that this is not like losing to Rutgers in the past. It's a bad loss. It's a loss that I was not expecting, but it's not a loss like losing to Rutgers last year. Combine that with the turnovers, and you might be looking at a team that can still win a couple games here. I don't want to choose any specific games that they might be able to win. I know, I guess, Northwestern and Maryland kind of come to mind, but I would have to watch their game tonight, maybe see how Peyton Ramsey looks in that offense, but I don't want to make any predictions. The fact of the matter is the season is not going to go winless just because of this game. Now, it might go winless, but I would not draw those conclusions just from these seven turnovers against a slightly improved Rutgers team. That would be a rash judgment. Now, a specific criticism I do want to address that I saw somebody mention this to me on Twitter. Actually, a few people did. I saw it on the Spartan Bag message board. I saw it other places. I don't understand the need to bring up Mel Tucker's salary and say, oh, well, I expected more from him and this program considering he's making $5.5 million a year. Okay, well, first of all, How much do you expect you're going to have to pay somebody to coach a team that finished fifth in the Big Ten East in their own division? They finished fifth. How much do you expect you're going to be able to pay them to come coach you in February before, back then at least, their spring practices were going to start at their regular teams? I, I think they offered Luke Fickle even more than that, if that's any consolation, um, but I don't understand what people think they're going to get a head coach to come coach in the Big Ten East and think they're going to get him for any less than five and a half million. Now, you could have. You could have gotten Brett Bielema. You could have gotten Chris Creighton from Eastern. Do you really want Brett Bielema and Chris Creighton walking into this door? Do you think they're going to get anything more out of this offensive line? Do you think they're going to get anything more out of Rocky Lombardi and these guys? And if that's what your options are, that's what our options were after Luke Fickle turned down Michigan State. I don't understand a single complaint about this salary. Would it have been better to have paid $4 million a year for Brett Bielema versus $5.5 million per year for Mel Tucker with him and his staff and all their 30-plus years of NFL experience? I don't agree with that at all. That's one of the criticisms that I won't be responding to if I hear those um, directed at me. If someone asks me a question about salary, I'm not going to entertain any of those. It doesn't quite make much sense to me to say that, hey, we paid the new industry standard required to hire a coach to coach the fifth best team in the Big Ten East. So I'm going to be mad and hold that against him, even though that should be the bare minimum required to get somebody to coach in this position at that point of the year. And I people might be misconstrued by the fact that we um, might be misconstrued by the fact that Michigan State was in the college football playoff a few years ago, but that talent's not here anymore. When any coach is considering taking this job, they don't say, oh, I'm taking over a recent college football playoff contender, um, so therefore it's going to be an easy place to win at, and therefore maybe I don't need to demand a huge salary in order to take the job. No, they understand this for what it is. This team was 7-6 and six each of the last two years. Now, that's not to say that there's no talent here. But this is a program that is 7-6 and six in the last two years. Again, plays Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State every single year. And is not a job you go and take unless you are willing to put up with some challenges, especially when there's a rebuild. 
Nobody worth their weight is taking this job for less than five and a half million, period. So that's all that's all that I will say about anyone using Mel Tucker's salary in order to argue that they were disappointed. Now you can say you're disappointed, just don't tell me that it's because the salary he's being provided. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, moving forward, the gist of it is that there's a lot of uncertainty all over the Big Ten, and I wouldn't write this team off just before um, getting to see the rest of the conference play out, getting to see some additional sample sizes on some of these teams and some of these new quarterbacks and some of these offensive lines. Yes, I don't think we'll win more than three games, um, but I don't think that this season is lost just because of today's game. And I don't think that you can specifically start counting certain games as guaranteed losses. I think this team could occasionally look very good and occasionally look like it did today. So you might win a game. You're not expecting this team to win, but you also might lose another game like today, maybe against uh, a Maryland that you shouldn't lose to. I think they do end up winning about two, three games, I guess, but I wouldn't write off games against certain opponents. There's going to be a lot of highs and a lot of lows with this team, and you don't know which team they're going to come against. So those would be my closing remarks here, and stay tuned for the game preview episode next week against our rival, and thanks for joining in.